Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome, everyone. This week on Around the Coin, we covered a few different topics. We started with the F8 conference, went over some highlights, reviews, uh, predictions, and where Facebook could be going for the future, uh, as well as their interesting drone project. We next talked about Brian's uh, joining the Brett King podcast. Brett King is a uh, very well-known, I think has the largest podcast and payments in the world, and Brian was on the show. We had Brett King on previously on Around the Coin Time to talk about his conversation there, which focused around credit card fraud on Apple Pay and some of the misconstrued press articles around Apple Pay. Um, interesting. And the interesting transition there was on Brett's show, Charlie, uh, Charlie Schrem is a founder of a company called BitInstant. And Charlie was recently, actually tomorrow, he is going to jail for two years. Charlie has an amazing story of kind of being prosecuted or convicted as a, um, not targeted, but uh, unfortunate um, repercussion of his company facilitating a transaction to uh, marijuana or drugs in the $1 million to $2 million range. Interesting perspective. Uh, we get into more about that on the show. And there's a fantastic article about Charlie Online. The SEC ruling on crowdfunding going from $5 million to $50 million is absolutely huge. So we talked about the effects that that'll have. We also touched on payday lending restrictions, the changes that happen in the industry, and how it'll affect, frankly, everyone. Um, the, the payday limitations or the interest and fees uh, over $80 billion last year, a lot of that's going to be uh, fixed for the industry. So talk about the effects on that. And as always, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, issues you'd like us to bring up, or if you'd like to donate to the show, we appreciate all those. We're the easiest guys in the world to get a hold of. So look forward and hope you enjoy. All right, everyone, welcome to Around the Coin. We have Brian Feisel, myself, today. Uh, exciting week, as always, as Facebook wraps up their F8 conference uh, with the, a lot of emerging products, but notably the, the sort of platform that they're creating around Messenger. Uh, so we'll be diving into that as well as a few other topics. Brian Feisel, how are you guys doing today? Wonderful. Doing good. Doing good. Faisal, uh, before the show, was a little, little questioning on his voice, but uh, we convinced him I think he sounds great for today. So, <laughs> Faisal, we're glad to have you on. Otherwise known as Barry White for today. Yeah, <laughs> tail end of the flu. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. So, we can jump right in. Uh, we have uh, F8, Brian, would you, or Faisal, either one. 
Would you, what were the takeaways from F8? Well, I think from my, I can just sum it up very simply. This is not just about you know, Facebook being a social media platform. This is about Facebook extending out like they've never extended out before. I mean, in, in many ways, they are equating themselves to be as equally cool and great and diversified as, say, Google, you know. Uh, I'm not sure what Brian would think about that, but but that's that's the gist of it that I got. It. It's much more than just a Facebook, you know, that you know was us traditionally as. And you can you can see that with some of their uh, products. I mean, particularly around uh, the virtual reality or acquiring, um, you know, the uh, uh, boy I'm drawing a blank here on uh, WhatsApp, uh, uh, Instagram, yeah, WhatsApp. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah Oculus. Oculus, yeah. I mean, acquiring Oculus is a clear shift in the company's direction to do something completely outside of the realm of the traditional, you know, book face, right? They're just. <laughs> well, but I think the big focus was on the Internet of Things, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's much more than just saying, hey, listen, we are all about an app on the, uh, on the Internet or the web where you can like photographs and that's it. I think they're doing, they're, they're showing the world that's. It's much more than just apps. Don't be surprised if Facebook comes and makes your next light switch. That's control on uh, on the internet. You know, and, and uh, don't do be don't be don't be surprised if we beam internet down from uh, ninety thousand feet. And do yeah. you think uh, do you think Facebook's in the realm of sticking to the commonality or the theme of connecting people, or they you know Google will say their overarching mission is to aggregate data and make it usable for the world, right? And they can kind of justify a lot of projects within that based on that sort of overarching broad vision. Is Facebook going to stick to the commonality of connecting people being their primary? Well, that's such a huge uh, umbrella, you know, connecting yeah. people. Everything comes under it, right? I mean, one of the things that Facebook walked away from this conference was was to let people know that you know we are more than just you know contributing than the the social media uh, timeline that you see on your uh, on your internet. We are all about you know making smart data centers. We are all about you know improving the coding uh, and the languages that you program with. All open source, all things you know like the Open Compute Project and the. uh, you know, from thermostats to batteries, everything. They're, they're into everything now. This is whatever we use and we utilize, we are contributing that as an open source community, you know, uh, to the world. And that, and and the the, the statement that, you know, oh, connecting everyone, you know, like Nokia used to have the quote-unquote connecting people. I think that's what Facebook is all about. Uh, connecting people, things, events, everyone, you know. Uh, so it's a pretty big, pretty big statement by them as well. Yeah, it sure is. You know, I got to say that the whole idea of a platform has probably been around for a long time within Facebook because it just looks like it was one of the early missions uh, when the company was, you know, getting its momentum. And it really is the combination of a lot of ideas, a lot of thoughts. You know, I think everybody was sort of taken aback when they separated Messenger from, you know, the actual Facebook app. And they figured, well, that was just an echo of how messaging is uh, taking place in other parts of the world. But really, it was a much deeper, more profound thought. You know, they were looking at what is this all going to play out to and and where is everybody residing at most of the time? You know, and and the people I know that use Facebook regularly, as it stands today, that app is open 24-7. It is a form. It's like it's like the cell phone. It's a form of instant communication. So now the question is, when you're inside that app long enough, 
what are the other things that you're going to be doing with it? And Faisal and yourself, you know, uh, Mike brought out, we're now in this kind of realm where it can extend out to anything. It can really extend out to any type of communication. Brian, do you think that they kind of stumbled on that? I mean, I remember when Facebook released their, their heads, their chat heads on the app. Uh, where you can you can you click off someone's face and chat with them in, the, in in Facebook, and I think almost you could sell me on the story that that product failed. So then they realize, okay, we have to create a whole new messaging app, and then boy, if we create a whole new messaging app, that's going to be annoying for users. So let's build on top of that and make it a platform. Do you think it was really a overarching long term mission, or is kind of they stumbled on it by uh, failing with another product? You know, I think combination of both. I think you have these ideas that get whiteboarded, you know, and maybe get forgotten about. I think they started talking about this fairly early. I think the reason why uh, David uh, Marcus is over there is because somebody had that conversation, you know, and everybody would say, well, why would he take such a position? Well, of course, it's about payments, but it's also the idea of creating almost um, an Android, uh, maybe a mini Google inside of Facebook. Uh, this this platform uh, supersedes any of the underlying operating system. It almost makes the operating system irrelevant. Uh, it makes uh, Facebook uh, more relevant, and um, it's a it's a shot across to everybody in the tech space. I mean, at this point, in a way, platforms will you know, and I think Faisal brought this up uh, just about this time last year. The idea that apps will not really live on your phone anymore. It'll just be, you know, a sort of a, a, an app in the cloud. And this is the beginning stage of, the, of that in, in many ways. Yeah, I mean, just to think of that, the concept of you having to download a piece of software onto your native phone uh, to be able to use it, it, it kind of, we take it for granted now, but I think that, that won't exist in the future, right? If you think about your your computer, Makes no sense. You, you know, it, you don't need to download all every different. Mm-hmm. You don't need to download Facebook application to use it. It just would have a connector, you know. That's it. Yeah. It would know how to connect back to Facebook and then connect to whatever app you wanted to use within the Facebook uh, umbrella. I mean, if you look at what rich media is being streamed, like uh, you know HD video, and the amount of throughput necessary to make that happen. Why Why not do that with an app? Why not just make the entire experience essentially in the cloud? And when that happens, you know, it changes the whole scenario for companies like Google and Apple. I mean, then at that point, how do you stay in front of it? If if the underlying app that somebody is living in all the time is is the space that they, uh, in, in, you know, inhabit, then the uh, they become almost like the dumb pipes that the, the, the telecoms were a generation before, right? Uh, you know, the operating system and, and the entire user experience is just kind of a given. And then the app that you get is uh, the more value. So it's an interesting time and a big, big step forward for Facebook. Yeah, I think I think both, I was just going to say on top of that, both Facebook and Google both realized that their initial core value propositions, Facebook and search and, and Facebook and, or sorry, Google and search and Facebook and the connection platform for people to see pictures and status updates, those, those things are going to start to erode in terms of their overall value, right? Google admitted that search is not even going to be their, their main driver of, of growth mm-hmm. and revenue um, in five, 10 years. So they kind of, they broaden out, I think, out of disparity or realizing that that's the only option they have for long-term uh, success? Well, you know, Mike, you have to think that when you cross numbers like 200 million, let's say a couple of years back, and then they went to 300, then to 500 million, they must be thinking, okay, where is this going, you know? 
tomorrow with such projected growth, we'll, we'll hit 1.2. There are 1.4 billion people on Facebook. They have a responsibility, perhaps as a technology company, to venture out into other areas, to forge more, to do more than just saying, you know, it's all about picture liking and, you know, friendship requests coming on Facebook or, you know, chatting with each other. It has to be, it has to do with much more than that. And I think that's where perhaps, you know, more advisors or visionaries were bought onto the firm and said, you know, this is what we think we should do. Because when you cross a number like a billion, I think there is an added responsibility, whether you admit to it or not. Mm. There's no doubt. (laughs) How do you feel about um, Facebook's internet access in developing countries, Faisal? How do you see that? Well, it's not just about developing countries. It's just about those areas where, where the ability to place internet is so expensive on a per house basis that it just doesn't make sense that the commercial entities like telcos and cable providers don't extend there. And that's the, you know, those gray areas or blackout areas areas is what Facebook would like to go. And I think it's a very ambitious thing, you know, having a, a solar powered drone in the air for 90 days, what have you. And Have you seen you the know, size of this thing? Yeah, wow. It's bigger God, than that uh, fantastic. a Boeing. I mean, the, yeah. the thing is just immense. And, and uh, uh, you know, uh, very ambitious. 60, yeah, 60 to 90,000 feet, which is well, way above the commercial airline, you know, uh, height. So pretty impressive, you know, pretty darn impressive. And and they keep saying it again and again and again that this is, you know, the next 10 years, the next 10 years. So I think mm-hmm. the next 10 years are going to be fantastic. Uh, and I think one of the things that Facebook uh, is also addressing, uh, which was a side thought, is, you know, they'd be looking at how talent can be now acquired in the U.S., especially with respect to the uh, H-1B limitation and so forth. Because if they're building what they're proposing to build, they need a whole lot of new engineering talent, which may or may not be available in the U.S. right now. So um, many, many, you know, so many avenues have opened up just by this by this conference alone. It's 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 absolutely fascinating, you know. I know, I know, right? Just gets you to think that it's amazing that the Facebook and Googles of the world have a bottleneck of uh, acquiring new people to the internet as their limited growth. Yeah, I mean, it's not the Facebook you and I grew up with. I, I guess that's yeah. the easy easy way to say mm-hmm. it, right? Hey, not this is not the Facebook, Facebook, not your dad's Facebook. There you go. So this is much more. This is Facebook as a as a you know engineering giant, as a technological giant, one with the amazing amazing foresight about the future and how they can do things where other countries even dare not even try to do. You know? Okay, here's uh, a question. Uh, you're a telecom, right? You're a, a small regional telecom provider, whether cellular or even landline. And you have, um, you know, five or six of these Facebook drones up there. How is this going to change the entire infrastructure of what we call cellular? I mean, basically, those days are over. You would have a Facebook I mean, phone, a, right? Yeah, isn't it, isn't everything to- Wi-Fi now? Isn't yeah. everything? I mean, one of the first things that I see people doing when they land at an airport um, <laughs> Is they don't buy that that SIM anymore, you know, they'll buy it maybe, but what they really want to do is where can they get Wi-Fi from? Because once they get that Wi-Fi, you know, they have access to Skype, they have access to Viber, et cetera, et cetera. So I think isn't everything going the TCP/IP route anyways? So, so look at the- it. So look at this. You you make a great point. So here we have Facebook with drones in the sky, and we have WhatsApp, right? <laughs> and I mean, essentially, we are completely bypassing. 
uh, local cellular infrastructure. Now, the question is, what's the sovereignty about um, uh, having one of these 90,000 feet above your country? I mean, are they going to start dro dropping these drones because local telecom providers are being uh, disrupted? I mean, this is interesting times here. I, I think they'll they'll figure it out. I mean, some countries might oppose to it, uh, which could be, in hindsight, a bad decision. But I think overall, they'll manage. I think they'll manage. Yeah, absolutely. What do you think, Mike? Would you uh, be a Facebook drone supporter? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a supporter of anything that brings more internet to the people, right? I think sure. Facebook and Google particularly, or, you know, other companies as well. But there's a short list of those who are both have enough funding, enough um, just clout to, to be able to do projects like this. And if they don't now, I just question whether we're going to see sort of the, uh, you know, the, the, the rush to the moon effect, right? Where everyone's all about bringing internet to the world. And then, you know, we try it and then, it, you know, we do it a little bit and then we stop, right? It's amazing to me that, you know, we went, it's in terms of space exploration that we went, we did these things with the emotional excitement of the world. Then we stopped. I'd hate to see a similar thing happen here where, you know, Facebook releases the drones and Google's the, the, the balloons and we bring some internet, but it doesn't quite work out. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm a, full believer in getting but, to a but sustainable But that's okay, point. you know, I, I, even if that happens, that's okay, because I'm sure from all these experiments, something else would come up, you know, something else would prop up. Uh, the, the need for connectivity is universal, it's the common denominator, and it's what's needed most more than ever. I mean, mm -hmm. no one in, I, I asked people in the US, are you happy with your internet? I was surprised that over, you know, two thirds of the people I uh, talked to said no. Yeah, and, and I was like, really? I mean, what's your upload download speed? Oh, well, you know, I have 50 megs download and 30 megs upload, but it sucks. And I felt that's like theoretical. Telling, that's well, <laughs> yeah, but I felt like telling them what, what the uh, position in India is or, you know, in Nepal or in, uh, you know, in a remote, uh, one of those, you know, seaside resorts in Thailand. It's pretty bad. You don't get one megabit even, you know. Uh, so when you so, have 30 and 40 megs and you, you're saying it sucks, something is seriously wrong here. Yeah, and the, it's all relative, and, right? Yeah. So the question, and, and, so the question yeah, is, you know, so we got all this internet connectivity and we got Facebook as the landlord in my ever famous uh, analogy here. And we now have cross-border payments. Now, let's kind of do a, a thought experiment, Einstein thought experiment. We now have these free Facebook phones being given to the rest of the world that really doesn't have access. I mean, when you look at the statistics, more than one half of the world does not have internet access uh, on any successful level. And um, a, a big uh, value of that don't have any sort of cell phone or feature phone even. So imagine Facebook essentially balloon dropping these, I'm being ironic, but you know, dropping these phones into the hands of all these people with an underlying payment system built into it. What does the world look like that? Let's assume the politics of the banking laws and KYC is all worked out. I mean, you're talking about a very powerful weave into the uh, infrastructure of people's lives, you know, moving money and moving communication. Make sense? It, it does. It totally. Uh, and, and here's the best part. You know, in, in the early um, 1990s, there used to be this commercial by AT&T. You know, have you ever opened a door with your uh, phone? Oh, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was Tom Selleck's voice, and he used yeah, to yeah. say, yeah, you will, and the company that will bring it to you is AT&T, you know? <laughs> and I revisited all those um, ads. I think there were about seven of them. Oh, uh, you got to do, uh, do a retrospective on Quora on that. That's and, <laughs> and 
almost everything is true today. Everything, well, you know. You, you remember Iridium? Uh, remember yeah, that? I, I remember it very well. Yeah, yeah. That was going to solve everybody's communication problems, uh, right? But, okay, but you know, even if it didn't, I mean, the thing is, right now, what Facebook has, in hindsight, it's very easy to say this, but you know, I, I applaud the management for thinking it through. They have a platform where everyone resides. Uh, yeah. It's not like Google. I don't reside on a Google platform. True, I use true. it every now and then, but I reside on a Facebook platform. You know, uh, and they're saying, you know, all these pictures that you're doing. This is this is so yesterday. Ninety percent of all internet traffic they predict will be ninety percent will be video. Really? Wow. And then, and then wow. they said it'll be immersive video. The ability. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, Skype was, you know, Skype. If you said it, that I want to Skype you for a business purpose, many people sort of looked down upon you and said, you want to Skype? You can't pick up the phone and call me? Right, right, right. right. Today, we don't think about that anymore. You know, if you have a Skype and even if you have a funny ID like mine, which is Babushka99, you know, it doesn't matter. People people will add you, people will talk to you. Uh, but, the, but the video feature on Skype is, you know, getting there. Facebook is already thinking 10 years ahead. How can I make that experience so naturally and normal for everyone Faisal, else? Faisal, are you talking Oculus Rift here? I mean, we're talking about that really immersive Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, wow. why not? And, and, and imagine being able to pull $10 out from my wallet virtually and just hand it over to you. You know, uh, I, I don't think so that's far-fetched. I don't think so it's far-fetched at all. And again, you know, you had Second Life and other uh, virtual worlds that were the precursors to this. Money was flowing you know, relatively freely in that world. Uh, and here we are moving into the real world. But now you can kind of see all the pieces fall into place with the, you know, the thesis that you just presented there about, uh, you know, immersive video on why they acquired that technology in that company. Because that's, if that is true, is true. In fact, no, I, I think Facebook made it very clear in the F8 opening conference, three problems, internet connectivity, human interfaces, and, you know, the, the, the 3D world, the immersiveness, that, that's coming. That's the way to look at it. What do you say, Mike? Would you be uh, walking around with Oculus on, uh, interacting with the 3D I mean, world? I think Oculus right now is at a stage where it proves the concept, but the uh, even going to uh, <laughs> even going to the launch conference a couple of weeks ago uh, up in San Francisco, I I tr- you could try the, the Oculus, and they have basically what they'll do is uh, they'll have HD. A GoPro, so they have ten or twelve GoPros strapped around in in a in a revolving structure, right? So when you put on the the Oculus, you can see as if you were looking at all of these together. And I think when in speaking to the one of the developers there, he said, "Look, we're we're proving the concepts now. We're just not at at use case. We're not at the point where you're going to put it on and use it in a day to day function. There'll be early cases, maybe in video games, but I think until it becomes small enough, high def enough." Um, I think the quality is there, but it still hasn't reached that point of I need one little camera with a 3D or a 360 view lens of the world, and I, th- I think that's when it really starts to open up. Yeah, right? Faisal makes want, a great you, point. You don't want glass holes walking about with an Oculus. <laughs> no, you know? I mean it's just so. I mean it just really doesn't fit in our lives, right? It's like, you know what it is? It reminds me of when cell phones were first invented, and you picture the car phone with the guy with the huge phone, and he's you know he's holding it with two hands, right? That's kind of where the we are. Phone. Yeah, right. That's where we are. And eventually it'll become super small and slick and tugs activated and, and everything else. But uh, when that happens, I think the doors will really open up. 
And who knows? I would bet by that time Apple's going to get in the business and do something really cool, right? Um, yeah, every time I see Oculus, it just reminds me of the lawnmower man. I don't know if you ever saw that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Stephen King, uh, you know, this is all about the lawnmower man coming back to life. Mm-hmm. If you haven't it, it, seen it, just go see it. Yeah, yeah, it's a great analogy. And it does feel that way, you know. And the thing about all new technology, there's a lot of dead ends to it, but it, it informs what the future is going to bring. And, you know, there's a lot of deniers about uh, uh, 3D technology. But, you know, if if you're using it to communicate with somebody at a remote distance, why not immerse yourself in their world? Why not share that experience? Uh, it's not too far-fetched and, you know, sharing pictures Dude, you or could, sharing text. Look at, the, look at what's happening right now with Periscope and Meerkat, right? Th- these are oh kind of God. examples of, of yeah. that exact oh same thing boy. happening. Isn't so, it awesome? Yeah, right? I mean, these are like little glimpses into what people respond to. I mean, um, it's really cool. So I think and, Oculus and you know is going to People are hungry for video. Mm-hmm. You know what's funny is a lot of my tech investor VC friends were very annoyed by Mercat. They just, well, this is, an, uh, you know, disruptive. And I go, that's right. It is. Well, you know, I, it's messing up my Twitter feed. And I go, you don't get it. It's not, it's not tech people doing this. It's, it's the guy in the street, the gal in the street. They're using it for what they want to use it for. And you may not find it interesting, but they do. And they're going to drive the sales. You know, um, whether or not Periscope or Mercat makes it, I mean, it's it's the beginnings of this uh, live feed that people are going to have. I mean, a lot of my friends have been for years telling me, we'll all have live feeds and we'll situationally let people tap into it at any moment. You know, and I kind of saw that with Google Glass a little bit, but it's kind of coming to that right now. I mean, uh, you don't really need to wear glass to, to get that kind of effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting the slight nuances of the experience, how they change it, right? Skype and Google Hangouts are sort of a, a synchronous conversation. You have to engage, and then you have the live video interaction. Uh, Meerkat's a one-way display, right? They have tech, they have text in there, and Periscope has text, but it's essentially broadcasting it um, on demand. And then you have um, you know Snapchat, which is the same same interaction. It's displaying it one way, but it's there's no return. Um, interaction, no you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's slight differences in the experience, but boy, it's just, that's a huge, uh, huge effect on the user base. <clears throat> um, why don't we, uh, change topics, uh, go on to, uh, Brian, you were on Brett King's famous podcast, uh, recently. Do you want to touch on what the experience was like there? Absolutely honored, uh, to be on the show. Brett is a personal hero of mine. I've been reading his early bank books and they were really quite really cutting edge. A lot of bankers I knew feared him because he would have a very direct, honest delivery about how technology is going to disrupt the entire financial infrastructure. And uh, he's so articulate, so tapped into all sides of the equation. So when he asked me to come on, I was like, wow, you know, they're going to let me sit at the big boy table here. So, <laughs> well, we did have Brett on our show. Yeah, you know, and, so. and Brett, Brett was brilliant in our show. But, you know, he, he really maintains this sort of um, effect uh, amongst his listeners as being just somebody who's moving and driving topics that are sort of cutting edge apropos to his vision of how banking is changing. So we had a discussion about, um, you know, the shenanigans of Apple Pay card loading. And um, all I could do was honestly reproduce my information from top five banks, top eight banks, really, 
I know the risk managers at these banks, uh, various departments of risk. And I asked them, I said, you know, when the, there was a, you know, Shireen uh, Abraham, he was a great guy. He put out a, a blog piece about how, how card loads were becoming an issue. And, you know, brilliant guy, great writing, but I never saw that type of uh, fraud level that he was, uh, you know, writing about. So I reached out to the bankers and I said, guys, what, what about, you know, card load fraud? What do you mean? Do you see a lot of it? Well, somebody tries to load a gift card or a wrong card or a little bit of, uh, you know, scam activity, but nothing to, nothing to write home about. And I said, well, there's a blog piece that this came out. It was literally the day it came out, started reaching out. And he said, that doesn't apply to us. And frankly, I don't even know what bank it would apply to because, you know, Apple gave us the responsibility to take care of our side of the business. And that is they have a platform. We set up how you get into that platform. It's not Apple's province. You know, they give us data from uh, iTunes if the card is loaded from iTunes, but they don't do anything else because they don't know about our customer or we do. And the media took this story as an Apple Pay fraud story and ran with it. New York Times, Wall Street Journal uh, over the last few weeks. And so Brett wanted to kind of clear the air about it. Hmm. And uh, he did a good show and uh, had some great, great guys on there. And I presented, you know, and I think we kind of leveled the the mindset about how this is taking place. You know, when Apple built Apple Pay, they were across the table and said, okay, bankers, we know nothing about card loads. That's your province. You take over. What do you need from us to make it work? And the banks being competitive amongst each other created their own systems. Some were faster and easier for loading. Some required you to call a call center. Some you had to get a text message. Some you had to you know, get an email. Some you had to respond to two things to verify a card load into Apple Pay. And obviously, forces of competition uh, cause banks to create different load platforms. If you want to load as many cardholders to the top of the wallet as possible, perhaps you cut it down to one form of uh, verification. So the kernel of, of what I think is valid in all this is yes, banks have made decisions on how they're going to load cards into Apple Pay uh, and they bear the burden of the losses of that particular decision. It's not on the back of the consumer. It's not on the back of Visa and MasterCard even. It's a bank that issued the card and certainly not on the back of, uh, you know, the merchant or Apple. And, you know, there's just great headlines when you say that fraud comes to Apple Pay. And, and even worse is when it's not delineated correctly about where that fraud is really taking place and who's really responsible and who bears the burden. My final thing I could say is if, if I'm a banker and the fraud is like some guys were saying 10% of transactions is fraudulent, why are people waiting in line to be Apple Pay banks? I mean, there's thousands of banks that are uh, aboard some of the smallest credit unions on the planet. You know, a credit union that might have even 5,000 members are now Apple Pay ready with their cards. You know, they can't bear the burden of fraud. It's almost funny how, how you interpret this, right? It's almost the, uh, the, the reality of the situation is just so much different than what's publicly being displayed. Yeah, because the narrative is, is really, 
is really to try to get as many people to read what you're writing about, right? So some call it clickbait or whatever. And it's also a, a way to, if you don't like Apple or if you don't like Apple Pay or if you have another competing system that you're kind of mad that it's supplanted, then you might want to drive the knife in and turn it a little bit. And I, you know, a lot of people that I know on both sides of this issue, I know Shireen, who wrote the original piece, is an incredible guy. And I know people who uh, really are on the other side and highly agitated. I know people with an Apple who are, I would almost say, viciously angry. I know people inside of banks that are viciously angry. But there's a code of of silence in, in credit card fraud. It's been there since day one. And the code of silence basically is we do not publicly talk about credit card fraud. No way, no how. Whether we why is that? Well, I mean, why is that such a big deal? It was established early on by Visa and MasterCard when they were a non-public entity and they were a member organization. You you signed a non-disclosure agreement. Uh, in fact, I have a non-disclosure agreement with, it, it, with, uh, with banks. Is it... You, is it part of the effect of they don't want to announce it because the other people will remember or think about it and they're more likely to, to do it? Just by announcing credit card fraud will increase credit card fraud? Yeah, all right. So it predates the hacker mentality of trying to open up, you know, um, opportunities where people have hacked software. The banking codes that most people operate under are from really the 1940s, 1960s, 1970s, especially for the credit card industry, 1970s built a foundation. And when you sign up to market credit card acceptance or to market credit cards, you agreed, especially in the early days, to have a, have a non-disclosure of any type of fraudulent activity. And some of it was not to aid in a bet. You know, you don't want to put out something that somebody didn't think about. The other thing was not to create media attention on any of the weaknesses within a credit card system. And, um, and I honor that code to a certain level. I won't talk about things that I know people can do and currently probably get around the system uh, by doing. And, you know, there's, there's reasons for that because the people who need to know about it know about it. And the people within the industry are constantly informing the, the fraud managers and risk managers. The thing that went wrong about this is it truly is a banking story how you look at it. Apple cannot dictate to banks what they do with their customers and loading into Apple Pay. And yes, it's an Apple Pay product, but you know people are mad at, at, about Apple extending themselves deeper and deeper into the payment. All right, they're mad at that, but then they get mad at them because they didn't demand bankers do something that's more appropriate. And then totally twist the thing around and say, you know, the bottom line is Apple Pay is an Apple product, you know, and if, if the experience sucks, it's Apple's fault. You know, the, the real reality, and there's also this story, which is ridiculous, that Apple only gave banks, banks 30 days to build their platform. There is not even a thread of truth in that. And if any banker were to say that, you know, on record so that Apple would hear it and know who said that, they would be taken out because Apple had given a massive amount of, yeah, well, yeah, because, you know, Apple stuck too. They can't public, even Tim, you know, when he came out with Apple Watch, I expected something to be said about this. But my insiders are telling me that they really don't want to make it harder on the banks. Now, were there mistakes made? Absolutely. It's a brand new system. You know, were they prepared? Probably not. Did some banks see 6% of cards during a 30-day period 
be of questionable nature? Perhaps. I don't know which bank that is. I know that the person that wrote that story feels very strongly. He's got data that suggests that. So I have no uh, province to question that it's not true. But is that true across the board? There is absolutely no way that it's true that it's even above 1%. Um, and then it, it really taints the whole image of Apple Pay or can you trust it? And and that's really the, the downside to it because it's not so much that it's tainting Apple. It's tainting any new technology that any of these creative experts in payments come up with because right. what you're doing is you're effectively tainting that hot tub. So anyway, being on that show was just amazing. It was great to have uh, sort of the conversation. There were some technical difficulties, so we didn't have a great debate. But coming on next to me uh, and the group of us was Charlie Sheerum. Uh, am I saying that right, Sheerum? It's not Charlie Sheen. <laughs> no, uh, my Jersey accent. Yeah, Charlie Sheerum. Charlie Sheerum. And it was really interesting because I've known his story, but I didn't really know the particulars of the story. And I stayed on and listened and quite a heartfelt conversation that Brett had with Charlie. Now, I don't know, still don't know the exact details, but effectively it looks like he violated a law retroactively, ex post facto, it was applied. And um, uh, Faisal, I'm sure you know some background to this. What, what exactly took place? Well, he used to um, run this uh, uh, bit instant. It was one of the first exchanges, uh, you know, the very first uh, Bitcoin exchanges. In fact, all the way back, if you go to money 2020 and uh, 2012, they were the only ones who were having, a, you know, a stall there, a Bitcoin-related stall. So he's been on, on the cryptocurrency front from the very, very start. And I think it was one of the, ex uh, so he had the exchanges, you know, he was doing everything as per the law. Uh, he didn't have a money transmitter license. It was not required at that time. He even wrote to the regulators and the regulators wrote back like, what? You know? Uh, but anyways, what happened, long story short, he closed down his business. Uh, the law came out afterwards. He was charged with money laundering, uh, under the money laundering, uh, money transmission and money laundering uh, uh, code, I guess, uh, for one particular transaction, just one, one client of it they knew, of which he knew about, uh, who bought, you know, I guess illegal drugs or something from the from Silk Road. And based on that, the state of Florida wanted to make an example out of him and sent him to prison. So he is going to prison tomorrow, uh, which is uh, the 20, the 30th of March, I think he has to report by the 1st of April. Um, no, no, sorry, the 30th of March, sorry. Uh, and what is interesting to note is he, the law came out after he had closed down his company, all, you know, all after, and he was charged. The law was sort of extended back to him and saying, well, you know, oh no, you know, we're going to charge you with this thing. And he had to take a plea bargain, you know. He could have gotten, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years in prison. And he took a plea bargain and he's going to prison for two years. Uh, just today, uh, we see that, uh, which is today, meaning the 29th of March, PayPal admitted to, uh, you know, transacting with people on the OFAC list. I mean, that's a big no-no in the industry. If you ever know anything about money transmission, if you're on the OFAC list, you do not transact that, you know, you, you simply do not transact with them. And PayPal did with, with, with a couple of people on, on that list, and they were fined $7.7 .7 million dollars. 
uh, no one's going to jail, you know. So is nothing it, like that. What, what is the difference here? Is it that PayPal is huge and he was small, so he's getting uh, pinpointed on this? Where he has, PayPal he is he, he is being made and is as an example. I mean, you know, the attorney general for the uh, state of Florida wanted, you know, just thinking it's an election year or what have you, and wanted to, you know, set himself up. He just he just went. It's almost like a personal vendetta, you know. Going after one particular, one small, uh, I think Brett King said it on his show, uh, and I think Brian can tell us, I think it's 800 and some million dollars that HSBC laundered for the drug cartels. I mean, that, that was the money that was laundered through HSBC. And admitted, a, admitted right? And it, oh, yeah, yeah, and paid a fine for it. Not one single person went to jail. Not one. No. It, just to be clear on this, was his company facilitating the transaction, right? He wasn't at all participating. He wasn't. No, 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 he wasn't. He wasn't. And, and you know, it, it, go ahead. I was just going to say before the show, Faisal, you mentioned something that this happened, the changes in the regulation happened after the transaction happened. So he's he's being committed uh, on crimes that he did or they well, weren't he, crimes he was, at the time, you know, right? So he was, his sentence, uh, you know, was struck down, uh, sort of uh, shortened. He admitted he was guilty of aiding and abetting the operation of an unlicensed money transmitter business. And he voluntarily forfeited the $950,000 as part of the deal even. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's being made uh, uh, the scapegoat. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. Uh, he's been he's been he's been through a pretty. I mean, he's he's been under uh, I believe a house arrest for 15 months prior to his going to prison tomorrow. Um, you know he, like I said, one transaction gone wrong. You can read up. We can read up online about him. There's a lot that's been written about him, and you know he, he himself has written written, um, and he has to admit to it now. You know because he said you know I took the deal. That's it. I'm a felon. He he's taking it very bravely. Uh, but think about it, you know, huge, huge companies uh, do get involved with money laundering in some manner or the other. So, Hello? Faisal, what, yeah. do you th- what do you think would be the uh, the lessons to learn here if you're running running a company that has to make some of these decisions, right? You're running a Bitcoin exchange or, or some other uh, payments company where you're making decisions on who to allow, who not to allow. What's the takeaway? Should this scare you and think, boy, we really need to tighten it up or... Is this just a, another fallen soldier, and he's kind of leading the way towards this uh, this this better world that we're all building well, for? You know, when it's unlicensed, I've always held this view: when in doubt, don't. Uh, the VC capital funding, etc., realm of the U.S. is when in doubt, absolutely do it. You know. Uh, so I see a lot of companies trying to say, "Well, you know, it's not legal." Well, how would you know? Right. Well, it hasn't been defined. But how would you know? Oh, we'll do it, and you know when they come after us. Well, then, would you like a Mr. Another, you know, Charlie Shrem episode to you know happen to you? That's why they all sort of. Really good point uh, that you make here. The the ethos of the technologist is it's better to say I'm sorry than to ask permission. And I've seen this ethos in every element of technology, and it makes a lot of sense for some realms. But the thing I've always said about financial technology is that, unfortunately, if you take that tactic, the downside is that you run the risk of being made example of. I'm a firm believer, a really firm believer, that 
it is maljustice to take individuals and to make them an example. Um, you know, if, if anybody were to dig deep enough, uh, you're running into people that have all sorts of uh, desires to try to change technology, but actually what they wind up doing is along the way is really just maybe get themselves into a, a whole list of hot water. So, so the question is, what, sir, what, the, what is really served by this other than the ambitions of the individuals that are in the prosecution side? I, I, I don't, I don't want to say, quote unquote, the government is to blame because there's really no such thing. What, what, admit, what happens is the government is administered by individuals, human beings, normal individuals who have all the frailties and ego problems that anybody else might have, even if they're in public service. And when certain types of lines have been crossed, um, a lot of people get very territorial, uh, very, very territorial. And, and especially prosecutors, they'll look at this and say, well, I don't particularly like this guy's attitude. So, you know, my insight here is we're looking at technologists who are making decisions on how they're going to change the world, right? And you look at the, the ethos that's surrounding most technologists, and that is, you know, it's better to say I'm sorry than to ask permission. Uber is a good example. I mean, they come into an area mm -hmm. and they're, quote unquote, disrupting uh, a, a particular industry. Not quite disruption. It's, it's really reshaping the industry in a, in a different manner. And, you know, you run into pockets of, you know, resistance. And obviously one could argue that the medallion system of taxi in many cities is, well, it's questionable whether or not uh, that's an open and honest type of environment. Some would argue that there is a, an unholy alliance between regulators, politicians, and owners uh, that try to keep out external forces. Now, when one looks at this scenario of making example of an individual, I think it's probably the most profoundly wrong way to apply justice. Uh, you don't use justice uh, as a marquee or a billboard to uh, in, in, impact somebody's life. You know, you do justice in the way that it should be, and that's even-handed and equally distributed. And if there's something to be said publicly as a prosecutor, hey, everybody, look here, this is what you do, or this is what happens when you do the bad thing, fine. But if you make the example to be the, the presiding uh, reason why you're doing things, I think we've turned justice upside down. Now, that doesn't mean that that's not going on every day in courts. If if any of us have ever uh, fallen into the, the system, and I, I think if we all dig deep enough, we all have family members that, or remote cousins or relatives that are in the system in some way. Uh, in the United States, the odds are that to the 90 percentile, you know, somebody that's been in jail or is in jail, you know, and the United States has probably the highest population per capita of people in prison. And a lot of them are in there for crimes that are not considered violent. And, there's a lot of mindset about this is, you know, what is a, what is a violent crime and what is a quote unquote white collar crime? And when you use the terminology white collar crime, you're almost making it seem like it's a certain class of individual. No, it doesn't have a class of individual. What you have is you have individuals that are being labeled that way so that the average person could say, oh, 
they're the big guys that went to jail. Well, you know, Charlie, I don't know the details of his story, but he's not a white collar criminal. He's a guy that may or may not have broken a law. I don't know. The courts have found that he has. Well, the thing is, $1 million went through to Silk Road, right? Now that $1 million went through his company to Silk Road. So he was charged with aiding and abetting money laundering of that $1 million as well as not filing a suspicious activity report, which you have to understand all happened afterwards. Sure. At that time, that wasn't available, you know. Uh, God, the, that's the, crazy, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and uh, now what was done with that $1 million, we don't know. Uh, you know, but, but the thing that it went through his system and he was not licensed as a money transmitter, is what they're getting him for. So it's, it's, it's I mean, he, he, in many ways, he, he, it's the same example of what Al Capone, you know, you, if they want to bring him down, they'll bring him down. Except he was no Al Capone, you know. He was just a dude who knew, who knew and loved technology very well. It feels and I like can imagine. God, it feels uh, like there's, there's, there's got to be more to it, you know. For then, then, then to do that to him is, is just mind-blowing. So I, I I would urge everyone who really wants to hear this from the horse's mouth and then also um, sort of compare notes is to go to Brett King's, uh, you know, uh, podcast that came out and do, uh, what was it, Brian, on the 26th, I believe? Yes. Yep. Yep. And it's uh, up on, there. On the 26th. It, yeah. And Radio America. La- yeah. And com, And yeah. it's the last 20 minute segment. You can hear him directly from the horse's mouth, what it was. And then you can obviously go and research everything else. Uh, he also has a blog that he maintains. Um, it's not that we are sympathetic with this cause. I, I just, we all just feel that he was singled out and that yeah. the punishment does not deserve, quote unquote, the crime. You know, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and, I, and I think the whole thing is that we're looking at, and even Mike might be able to add to this. I mean, you know, he's he's building a, a marketplace and a platform and an industry that is also regulated, perhaps not in the same way that financial industry. I mean, Mike, does it ever concern you that things that you're doing today that just cut the edge of medical services, that one day that somebody won't knock on your door and say you aided and abetted somebody uh uh, to do something, uh, you know, give a, 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 an elderly person their pills and they did it the wrong way, et cetera. Yeah. Does it ever occur to you and how do you feel about that? Yeah, hugely. Um, but I would say there's one one huge thing that kind of surprised me about his case, right, is that usually you have for founders or people in the company, you have the directors and omissions insurance, which usually protects them from things like this. So he can't get filed or singled out and personally um, prosecuted for this. So we would have that same sort of protection, which... Surprises me that he wouldn't, um, you know. So while well, you you do everything you can to follow all the rules, check all the the, uh, the eyes and, and cross your T's, there's always the threat of oh, what if we we do something wrong? Um, How is this going to affect me personally? Obviously, the business would suffer if you make mistakes like that. But I, I think to pick and choose him to take him out of a, a situation like this where it was clearly a business mistake and not an intentional. Uh, move yeah, to a fine a fine would have sufficed you know exactly exactly so it doesn't and scare also, me all the after time. the fact anyways after so, the fact yeah it's amazing yeah, yeah um anyways so two other moving on two other uh points uh that we need to talk about is one is the uh consumer you know finance protection bureau released its guidelines as to how new payday loan lending needs to be curtailed and mitigated. Uh, or you guys want to talk about that? 
Well, you know, I have not dived into the intimate details of exactly where uh, the changes have been. Well, Faisal, where where are you on this? What do you see uh, as as a big change? So the, it's basically an Obama administration kind of a, uh, you know hand me down, and it, it's saying that you know if you lend out money, you have to make sure that the borrower can afford to pay it back. Um, but the insane pricing models that they have, interest rates of 400% or more even, all that needs to go. So they're proposing regulations to rein in the short-term payday loans uh, you know, that have high interest rates and set a market that basically... Payday loan industry has taken has a bad rap, uh, but there are some very good companies out there. You know, We interviewed uh, Sasha Orla from LendUp and so forth. There's Lending Circle and all these things. These, these are the good companies. But the bad ones who are taking advantage... And I think the regulation is more geared towards them. It's a it's a very it's a pretty big industry. It's about forty six billion dollars a year, and uh, you know, and, and I think it's about time that this regulation came in and uh, sort of separated the bad guys from the good guys and I, and did some sort of monitoring on them. I, I agree. I agree. You know, and. The regulations on the industry has always been administered somewhat on a state by state basis, and. Um, I've always been critical of this and, uh, you know, with my contacts in, in D.C. when you know, this summer I had a lot of conversations, we talked about not only payday loans, but merchant cash advance loans. They're, they're mm-hmm. quite similar in nature. Uh, in my view, if you're a sole proprietor and you're operating a business and this is your primary source of income and you're getting a merchant cash advance uh, based upon either an invoice or on your credit card receivables, you should be really... Uh, facing the same uh, state laws that uh, payday loan companies do. It, it's, it's no different because... Well, you're it's overextending, right? I mean, you're well, overextending... Yeah, so you're overextending a loan to a, to a person or an entity that may not have the financial means to pay it back and they're sort of stuck in that you know, interest payment loop. Uh, and that's what they really want to stop. Most, most of the business models that are profoundly bad in both payday loan and merchant cash advance are based on the idea that you really need to re-up to uh, maintain your business and uh, or to maintain your your life if it's a payday loan. And the downside that to that is, and I've seen it in the merchant industry for almost a decade and a half, is that it sounds somewhat in, innocuous, right? You're saying, well, you know, we're only giving a percentage of um, of what they transact a month and they can mm-hmm. pay it back anytime. And if they don't pay it back, they're not liable for a merchant cash advance, for example. The thing that nobody really talks about is if they pay it back faster, the effective interest rate could be triple digit. So a, a merchant could get, uh, say, a merchant cash advance and wind up um, using it for advertising. Let's just say they doubled their business based on that advertising. Well, if they're taking a percentage of your credit card sales every uh, transaction and that winds up growing the effective interest rate or the fixed amount that you pay that company is catastrophically high now in in of uh, consumer uh, it's predatory in a sense that we develop a relationship where in fact just when you get to the point of getting next paycheck uh, you're forever paying into that interest cycle. And it's almost impossible for a certain sector of the community, especially ones that have not been educated in finance and, and compounding interest, et cetera, uh, to ever get out of it. And um, so it's good to see leadership coming from this. Um, 
I could say in some states, it's probably even more strongly regulated. And as you know, Faisal, just knowing the money transmitter licenses, uh, the, the, the hoops that one has to jump through, that's why they were established. They weren't established to try to stop, you know, technology companies. They were to try to stop some of the predatory uh, cash advance and uh, predatory money, uh, true money transmitters that were taking place in, uh, you know, sending money to Mexico or, or to, you know, other parts. Yeah, of the, the, whole, the whole thing is about, you know, putting uh, limits on payday uh, loan lenders, making sure that they don't overextend themselves or rather don't overextend and burden the, uh, the person, you know, taking the money because rolling over is going to be limited twice a year for, for under such rules, the new proposed rules and so forth. So I think it's, it's definitely a step in the right direction and, uh, you know, we'll be learning more as we go along once these rules become uh, more clearer. Very, very Absolutely. true. <clears throat> and, and Mike, you're uh, you're probably interested in uh, in this, where uh, we have a change in the rules for how much money a um, non-accredited investors can investors can put into a startup. Um, what do you think of this new uh, ruling? Yeah, let me just kind of give you the highlights of what it is. So the SEC uh, announced a change in the regulation that raises the bar, among other things, from five million to fifty million in the. Uh, Regulation A offerings. So this is the uh, money contributed from independent investors. These are not uh, necessarily accredited investors. What they do is, um, I guess to explain it would be um, to raise money from from multiple people in multiple states typically has has taken a lot of uh, regulation barriers. Uh, So there's forms, the form 10K, the form 10Q, 8 K and other proximity statements that you have to make to investors in different states um, when they're not accredited to invest in your company. Um, A lot of these forms have essentially killed um, crowdfunding as it is, or the stance of, or the potential for crowdfunding um, in different states, which naturally, right, that's kind of the the necessary requirement because it's not going to be all from one state as well as outside the U.S. In fact, a, an interesting statistic is uh, in 1998, there were 57 Regulation A offerings, essentially crowdfunding, right, by by raising money from multiple people in multiple states um, with or without accredited investor status. In 2011, there was only one. So I think the, the realization was that, look, guys, this, this, this bill, this piece of legislative um, allowance is failing. Regulation A is failing. So while it wasn't new what they did, it was it was innovative in the sense of how they changed it to make it fit our times. Um, right now, they split it into two tiers. So they have a, a $20 million and a $50 million tier. Um, for companies who are raising $48 million, let's say, I think this is going to be an absolute game changer. This is to say... If, uh, say, Spotify wanted to raise $48 million or Home Hero, for instance, our, our company, uh, we could go through all the people that we know. Spotify could send a push notification to all their users and say, hey, no matter what, where you're located, uh, no matter how much money you make, so you don't have to be an accredited investor, um, you, would you like to invest you know, anywhere from $1 to $50 into Spotify and own a piece of Spotify? And that concept is just completely new. And that's made possible by this new, new law. Um, one, a couple of the interesting things about it is that it doesn't, it doesn't have a lot of the downsides of publicly raising. So the reason companies go public is so for the same benefit of being able to raise money fluidly from people all over the world, all over the country. 
and they come with certain catches, right? You have the S1, you have to disclose a ton of information about your company, you have to have quarterly reviews where you publicly disclose your incomes and your balance sheets. You have Sarbanes-Oxley, which is a regulation to disclose uh, more information about income of executives. So there's there's certain cons in going public, right? Virgin uh, Virgin as a company went public and then became private again uh, because of a lot of these regulations. So the the cool thing is that Regulation A, this new SEC change, brings a lot of the good of going public and IPO, and it doesn't it doesn't also bring the bad. So it's a pretty good deal for companies who are in that thirty to fifty million dollar uh, funding stage. How would it would it have changed your underwriting and funding? If, um, say, this was, let's say, maybe a year ahead, you know, it's already in, introduced to the public and it's available, would you have built your company differently? Who would you have reached out to as investors and how would that have changed your building process to get funded? Well, it's actually interesting because we, you know, Home Hero, we've raised just under $4 million so far. Um, we've been around for about a year and a half. And <clears throat> we've got great investors with Chamath and Jason Galkanis and Science involved. But ultimately, uh, what the, I think the benefit is, is potentially for us for the future, right? If we wanted to go and raise uh, another round of capital, say $20 million, $30 million, we could do this with this regulation. So not to say that typical VCs and, and uh, you know the benchmark Sequoias have anything to worry about. I think there's insane value in the actual people behind the scenes, um, having those guys on your board and the things that they could do in terms of recruiting, et cetera. That's, that's going to remain valuable. But I think it opens the door for companies who previously didn't have access to raise the money. Um, they weren't a typical VC company or, you know, being five VCs in a, in a firm, a lot of times it's just volume, right? There may be 50 good deals, but only 20 happen. Um, and the unfortunate part is that there may be a million people in the country that want to invest in a company, but they can't do it because of regulation barriers. Um, and now companies who want to raise, and there's people out there that they can raise from, they could do it. So theoretically, we could go on angel list. And if you look at Angelus and the syndicates there, it's amazing what they've done. You could go and you could put your company up there. You could publicly raise. To publicly disclose that you're raising funding is a new thing, right? So you can disclose that you're raising $30 million and people can uh, uh, also contribute to that. So it may affect us in the future, right? Maybe there's a, a slice. Maybe we raise part from a VC and part from crowdfunding. Um, I think traditionally how I would approach this, Brian, is to say the the, the people who would benefit the most um, would be the ones who would struggle the most in raising from venture capital. But who knows? Maybe it even turns a little bit where it becomes an, a more ideal situation to raise from um, uh, the, sort of the crowdfunding approach. You know, Mike, I see this as also a, a chasm that will be crossed where you have people who love particular products or services to be able to actively participate as owners of that. And I think we, we have lost that sort of experience. The public markets have not done so well in the last 15 years for a whole lot of reasons to allow individuals to feel really active in the, the takeoff of a new company. If you look at tech stocks, it's primarily being controlled by very large uh, blocks of transactions, uh, the the individual investor, even in in Facebook and Twitter, was quite low in comparison to other uh, epochs. So I, I almost see it as sort of a endorsement. Uh, you know, one of your 
one of your caregivers, right, coming out uh, within uh, your uh, home hero system, they love what you've done. And they say, well, you know, I can publicly own a piece of this. Yeah. I'm investing my time here. Why not get a return as an investor? I think that's a very powerful endorsement. And it's very much like what the music industry did uh, when it got deconstructed. Uh, it, we would see artists take their YouTube counts and their uh, accounts from, you know, free downloads. And we would try to transfer that into a projection of how they would do as a quote-unquote labeled artist in distribution models. Investors, larger VCs, can now look at the, the, this sort of new crowdfunding or this new uh, non-accredited funding as a endorsement of the future viability of the product, right? If you have mm-hmm. if you two million people who have invested their hard-earned cash into your company, how much more valuable of a signal is that than yeah, not right? having those people? That's such a, that's such a good point. Because if you look at it, uh, you know, the reason Warren Buffett is so successful is that he goes to all these companies individually and meets with the executive teams, right? But no one else can afford or has the ability to do that. But who else is the, is the key component to assess a company's value and their success? Is the users, right? It's the that's users, right. it's the customers, it's the, it's the people involved um, so on the ground mixing. level. We're mixing a whole new, you know, a chemistry here on how a company will market it itself, right? Because companies in the past would market itself to two, uh, two different entities, and that would be quote unquote the owners, the shareholders. A publicly traded company is beholden only to one thing: profits to shareholders. Yeah. Well, there was another line. Of well, you got to make good pro- uh, good products so that you can uh, be of service to your customers. Now we're entering into a realm where your customer and your shareholder potentially could be one, one yeah. individual. So now the dialogue, the narrative, the uh, entire production of how you create your company could be tilted in that direction, especially in that crucial startup phase. Yeah, and I'll say that's when you're testing, that's when you're building, that's when you're creating and you're almost getting a vote with a wallet, a vote of confidence saying, "I like what you did, that feature is great. Here's another 20 bucks I'm throwing. I'm being maybe a future here where people can uh you know, uh incrementally invest over time, you know, maybe on an on-demand type of basis as you see a company grow, maybe you throw as an individual 100 bucks in there. Maybe sure. Maybe you take all the change that you had for that month and whether or not you have it in real coin or just as a, as a rounding up and you throw that into a, a fund that you've created to support a dozen or so startups. And sure. it sounds yeah. like micro miniature, but this is how revolutions start. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are, those are essentially features on the overall idea, but I think yeah. they're huge, um, but yeah. they're going to happen. Yeah, I so, think what we, if you look at, Brian, one point I was going to make there yeah. is you see a lot of startups uh, go to the Bay Area. Um, and one of the benefits of being in the Bay Area that people don't often talk about is if you're if the investors can actually use your product, um, you know, even even with us, people would say, oh, you know, you should go to the Bay Area so investors can actually use Home Hero with their parents and, and such. That's great, but it also restricts the funding capital to the Bay Area, right? Because now if you have... Uh, if you have a company who makes, you know, Uber, it's hugely beneficial for them to be in the, in San Francisco first because investors used Uber and they liked it and then they invested. So they actually had first hand experience, which pushed them to actually invest in the company. But why do you need that? Wow. Right? You should you should say, okay, wow. anyone who loves this product, no matter where they live, they should be the ones to determine if it's willing to be. Um, 
you know, willing to be invested in. So, so let's, let's look at this. You're in Cincinnati, Ohio, and you're a couple of young guys and gals have put together a great idea. Your local community loves it. They wind up giving you a, a funding round of say two, three, $4 million. And the thing takes off radically across the, you know, the, the non-traditional tech be- uh, areas. Do you really see that as as liberating uh, the entire startup community? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think it's just more heads in the game. You know, it's not there's not a there's not a zero sum game here. It's just people that wouldn't have otherwise gotten funding or wouldn't have otherwise built that product. Now they are. It's not replacing someone in the Bay Area that's you know competing for a limited number of dollars. There's an unlimited number of dollars that can go into this. It's just a matter of how do you access it um, from different sources and how do you sort of make make it sustainable and um, aggregated like a fundable or angelist does. And, and let's get grounded in this: fifty million, uh, fifty million dollars for a small company is a tremendous amount of money. Not in a Silicon Valley, you know, perspective. I mean, that's like a, a friend and family's around right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but. For the rest of the world, it's actually living in the in reality. You know, fifty million dollars is beyond an IPO for for it's them. A, it's a, a game sense. changer. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Faisal? How do you see this playing out? I mean, you're outside you know, I, the U.S. I mean, how would well, you I mean, see it as an investor? I mean, I see this as a wonderful opportunity for anyone to come in. You know, even if not not everyone has that. You know, qualifies for the accredited investor. Uh, you know, uh, thresholds that they've set. But I, I'd be really interested to see how this would play out with uh, the likes of Kickstarter, you know. Would they be implementing something where you can go on on a fundraising, uh, you know, campaign to raise funds on Kickstarter? Uh, that'd be pretty cool. I'd like to see the implications of this uh, you know, being turned into reality on a Kickstarter campaign. I think that would be the true litmus test, if you will. Mm, yeah. Now, what if it was so, an active market, though? What if it was like you can buy and sell and trade all the time and not their funding rounds, but you're literally on a daily basis making decisions, do I want to throw 10 bucks in here, 20 bucks? You see that as even more of a powerful effect? I don't know. I think that's where the SEC would come in, perhaps demand more regulation. Because the minute you start you know, buying and selling and buying and selling, uh, that really comes under the SEC's uh, purview. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think and, I think it's uh, not quite that have fluid yet. <laughs> yeah, they may have something to say about that, especially the uh, the exchanges. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big time. So we'll keep an eye on it. We'll keep this as a kind of constant, active topic. Yeah. Um, as we go through new episodes, but yeah, it's a game changer. I think we're going to see a, a startup rise from this that will change the world. We don't even know who they are or where they're where they're from, but perhaps they're not in the Bay Area. Perhaps, just like you said, Mike, they're somewhere around that just found the right combination at the right time yeah guys it's been another fantastic episode uh look forward to having this one up and on to the next one absolutely thank you take care and talk next week yep take care guys bye-bye bye-bye Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.